The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center's lecture podcast series are given live to an audience of soldiers and the public and provide insight into leadership and warfighting from scholars and soldiers, helping us tell the Army's story one soldier at a time. Our lectures often include important visuals. To view video of this lecture and many others, please visit the USAHEC channel on YouTube. The opinions and statements of the speakers featured on this podcast are not necessarily the views of the United States Army or the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center. Ladies and gentlemen, today is March 4th, 2020, and on behalf of the director of the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center, Mr. Jeffrey Mangelsdorf, and the entire staff of the Army Heritage and Education Center and the U.S. Army War College, welcome to the first lecture of the 2020 Perspectives in Military History Lecture Series. The USAC and the US Army War College sponsored the Perspective Series to provide us a historical dimension to the exercise of generalship, strategic leadership, and the, uh, the warfighting institutions of land power. In addition, as always, we like to extend a warm thank you to the Army Heritage Center Foundation and everything they do to support us here at the, at the Army Heritage and Education Center. As you saw walking in, the books for tonight are on sale behind the room. Uh, we, when we're out, we're out from those. Uh, so if you're interested in purchasing a book, make sure you get out there first uh, to buy one. Uh, all the proceeds from the book sales do go to the foundation to help support what we do here at the AHEC. So with that, it's my great honor to introduce tonight's speaker. Martin King is a highly acclaimed author and historian and, a widely, and is widely regarded as a leading authority on European military history. In addition to having written numerous books about World War II, he has spoken frequently to American servicemen and women at military bases across Europe and the U.S. Mr. King has also worked uh, as a historical consultant and writer for the History Channel. In 2015, Mr. King's documentary, Searching for Augusta, received seven Emmy Awards, including Best Historical Documentary. His book, The Fighting 30th Division, they called them Roosevelt's SS, received a nomination in the U.S. for the Distinguished Writer Award. Mr. King is also an honorary citizen and chosen cultural ambassador. Ladies and gentlemen, please help me welcome Mr. Martin King. Thank you, Pat. I love a good send-off, you know. I love a good build-up. And that was a good one. I appreciate that. First and foremost, I'd like to thank every single one of you for coming here tonight to learn something about your history. Uh, there are some claim that it's mine, but it isn't. This was your battle. You won it. It was your victory. So you could get over there and claim it as your own now. As you can hear, I'm not from Belgium. <laughs> Don't hold that against me. My wife is. She's here tonight. Now, the Battle of the Bulge was, oh, I love the rostrum bit. Well, that really does make me want to say, dearly beloved, we are gathered here today. <laughs> you know, there's something empowering about rostrums. I was at the one in the Pentagon with my co-author and dear friend who's here tonight. And we were so surprised they let us out of the Pentagon after that. It was amazing. We, we, we thought we were going straight to Gitmo. But it was fantastic. And basically, this battle changed everything. Look at the situation here. In September, November, 1944. Now, what you had, basically, the Allies, we were on a roll. We'd gone across France. Patton had gone way too fast. The supplies couldn't keep up with the man. We'd got right into Germany. We were on a winner, but we made far too many erroneous assumptions. We thought the Germans were finished. Patton knew they weren't. Patton said, and I quote, there are still six million crouts you can pick up a rifle, they're not done yet. But Patton, who claimed to be a great historian, was maybe a good historian when it came to antiquity. The Greeks he knew quite a lot about. He should have done, he was one. He'd been there before. 
He said, when the Germans hit us, they're going to hit us in the Alsace. The Elsass. The Alsace. I'm going to put my third army there. He was pretty convinced that that would be the case. So he puts his army right down underneath Luxembourg in the Alsace, the whole third army. But he got into a fight there around Metz. There were 14 forts around Metz, and they were all heavily fortified. And then the rains came. Now, up in the northern shoulder, Courtney Hodges was pouring men into the Hartgun Forest, depriving the U.S. Army of every tactical advantage it had had up until that point. So what was the strength of the Allies? And I'm going to say specifically the U.S. Army in 1944. The strength was they could move. They could displace from one point to the next. And the other thing was that they had air superiority. The Germans didn't have much Luftwaffe left. They couldn't get many planes into the sky. They poured them into the Hartgen Forest, into an area where basically they deprived themselves of that strategic advantage. So what you had is two points, north and south. And in between that two points is an 89-mile gap where there was only four divisions. Now, two of those divisions were in bad repair because they'd been in the Hartgen Forest. They'd seen it. Ernest Hemingway went in there and said, this is worse than Passchendaele. This is hell. He knew what the situation was. They take the 4th Division out. They take the 28th Division out. They put the 28th Division just at the border of Luxembourg and Belgium. They put the 4th Division down in there. That's where you're going to get some rest and relaxation, guys. That's the honeymoon area. Nothing ever happens there. Now, this is the importance of reading your history books, right? Because if General George Patton, God bless him, would have read his, he would have known that the Germans had been through the Ardennes before. 1870, Franco-Prussian War. Through the Ardennes, three armies. 1914, von Schlieffen Plan. Through the Ardennes, three armies. 1940, invasion of the West. Through the Ardennes, three armies. 1944, what are they doing? Patton's in the Alsace. He knows something's going off, he doesn't know what. Now, the attacking German forces at the time, they'd amassed three armies. Why didn't we know about this? Where was Ultra? Where was the intelligence? Well, Kenneth Strong, who was known as the Chinless Wonder to Montgomery, he said, I've heard a lot about the Germans building up forces along the border. They knew the Germans were moving forces from the east to the west, but they didn't know why. Now, the general assumption, and this, again, is an erroneous assumption, was that they were going to wait until we attacked them. That was the idea. They were building up forces for when we went on the offensive in February the following year. That wasn't what was going to happen. But what exacerbated a bad situation was radio silence. The Germans locked down. Radio silence, 10 days before this offensive went in. They managed to mass three armies. So, 6th Army, mainly SS, Joseph Sepp Dietrich. Dietrich was a shadow of the man he had been, he'd been three years earlier. The, Bav the Bavarian butcher's son was a drunk. He was a broken alcoholic who couldn't put three words together in a sentence. Never mind command a whole army. When Adolf Hitler says, Sepp, could you take Antwerp? He was like a nodding dog. Yeah, of course I can. Yeah, sure I can. He would say anything Adolf wanted to hear. He was a sycophant and a drunk. The best army are in the center. Hasso Eckhard Freiherr von Manteuffel, a real baron. Hitler had no affection for the aristocracy. But this man was a good general. He'd served with Rommel. He knew how to command an army. This guy, commanding the 7th, 
Erich Brandenburger, you wouldn't let him organize a stag night at a whiskey distillery. <laughs> he was not the right man for the job, in other words. Gerd von Rundstedt. This man got sacked quite a lot. And every time he got sacked, he got reinstated. He didn't agree with the plan, but he didn't dare say. He dared to say. Walter Mödel. Mein Führer. You can't do this. It's a bad idea. We don't have the resources. You're a coward, man. <laughs> no, I've been on the Eastern Front three years. Nothing to do with cowardice. It's common sense. We don't have the resources. What we need to do is do like the Romans did. What is the oldest adage in the paybook? What did Cicero write? What did, what did Julius Caesar write in Labello Gallica? Divide et impera, divide and conquer. And that's the idea. That's what they want to do, divide and conquer. But how do we going to do it? There's old Joseph. That's when he was sober. As uh, Manteuffel, Brandenburger, coming up any second now, he's looking rather angry there, probably because he didn't want to get promoted. The Allied forces, at the top of the chain, we've got Dwight D. Eisenhower. Now, Ike takes a lot of flack from historians. And I've read MacDonald and the rest of the guys, and they say, yeah, he was a great diplomat, he was this, he was that, but he wasn't a great soldier. I think he was. Cometh the man, cometh the hour. He was the right man at the right time. He made a wonderfully intelligent, calculated decision. You got the first army commanded by General Courtney Hodges. They're stuck in the north, they're fighting around the Hartgun. You got the third army with George Patton, 12th Army Group, Omar Bradley. Omar Bradley and Ike, whoa, big friends. They've been at West Point together, these lads. We've been there four times. And they still let us back. They invite us very frequently. So they've been at West Point together. Anything Bradley wants doing with the 12th Army Group, he gets on the phone, Ike, can I have this, can I have that? He'll get it. He'll get it. It will get done. And you got this little guy. Bernard Law Montgomery. Well, he went down with the American High Command like a digestive complaint in a crowded elevator. He was not popular. Was he good? I think he was. He had his, he had his uh, charms. He had his abilities. And these are the lads, as you see them coming here. Old blood and guts, the Third Army. There you go. He's up for it, is George. I'm a good friend of his granddaughter. Who sells patent beer, patent champagne, patent pens, patent socks. <laughs> and he's not afraid of the camera. And she's a lovely lady and a dear friend. They see, Monty, he was a cautious man. And that used to really, really upset the top guys at Shafe. He used to upset them. He, he was a cautious man because he'd been in World War I. So he was a guy, basically, this is the German plan, right? It's straightforward. Antwerp had been taken in early September, 1944. But it was useless. We got a dock, and we couldn't use it because the estuary was still in the hands of the Germans. It took until the 28th of November to actually open that estuary. When that estuary was opened, we could now supply the armies in the north straight from Antwerp. So here are the objectives. The spearhead are the 6th Panzer Army. What you don't see here, and what every military commander should take into consideration, is terrain. Terrain, terrain, terrain. Choose your ground. Choose the ground where you're going to fight. And that's what they didn't do. Now, I mentioned two divisions, the 4th and the 28th, but there were two others, the 99th Division and the 106th Division. And at this juncture, I have to mention a dear friend of ours who passed yesterday night. We were at his bedside. 
who was with the 106th Infantry Division. Dear man, he was right in the middle. They were green. They'd never fire a shot in anger. But they were good. They were keen. And they were going to disrupt a lot of plans. So there's the situation. On the 18th of December, 1944, the battle starts at 5.30 in the morning on the 16th of December. Three armies attack simultaneously. Now, the general consensus of opinion is the Germans attack, the Americans retreat. Didn't happen like that. What you were doing, in fact, was buying time, buying valuable time. They made redouts. They would hit, harry, kill, run. Hit, run, hit, run. And they would stagger the German advance. Now, the thing is about terrain is if you've got, if you've got a 69-ton tank, right, that's a beauty. That's packing an 88. That's going to be accurate up to five miles. That will put a hole through a Sherman like a hot knife through butter. It's a devastating weapon, but it's no good if it's in between trees or up a steep hill or in a narrow lane. Now then, what happens is that there are two cities, St. Vith and Bastogne, that are pivotal to this whole thing. Now, St. Vith has rail links going all the way to Germany. Bastogne, if you look at a topographic map, it's on a platform. Seven roads converge on that town. So obviously, it had strategic advantage. Now, we are fortunate. Blessed we are tonight. I would not have written a word without the assistance of a man who I think is a better detective than Sherlock Holmes. He's the best researcher I've ever had the good fortune to work with. We wrote six books together. One of those books was called The Tigers of Bastogne, which was dedicated to the memory of his grandfather, who was right there in Bastogne. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to welcome Mr. Michael Collins. All right, Mike. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Martin. Thank you, everyone, for coming today. Uh, when Martin and I began doing research, I didn't really realize uh, what was out there for different uh, archival uh, information. But uh, we really would just be Skyping. Uh, we used to actually call each other on the phone first, but then we got to Skype and really work off of each other. He would find uh, different uh, places that I should be doing research. and. I would go to the National Archives in College Park and make it happen. Uh, but really, the, the big thing with the uh, 10th Armored Division was that, yes, they were sitting uh, in the Alsace area uh, in France. A couple of different div uh, units were in Germany. But the, the big issue was is that uh, they had had their baptism of fire in Metz, and thankfully, they were getting re-equipped. They were getting rearmed, So they were actually in good shape when they had to move north to Bastogne. Uh, the main issue, though, was that uh, they didn't really know what was going on. Uh, every veteran I talked with uh, from the 10th Armored Division said, well, yeah, we just were told, just move north. And some of them just went along for the ride. And uh, some actual uh, units got split up. Some members of uh, one unit that should have been in Luxembourg were sent to Bastogne. So it's been very interesting to, to hear these different stories. And, the, the main issue, uh, oh, there's our book right there. Um, the main issue, though, for the 10th Armored was really how do you, how do you defend a area, especially in Bastogne, that has all these different roads going in. And they set up different teams uh, throughout. And it, uh, it really became a holding action. Uh, they, uh, the 28th Division was, uh, of course, retreating from Luxembourg, the 9th Armored Division, which also does not get any real, uh, any uh, actual uh, acclaim for what they did. They, they held on long enough that the 10th could make it there. And then, of course, the 101st came in, which, of course, many people think that it was just the 101st. But if it wasn't for the tankers and the artillery of the 10th, they wouldn't have been able to get there as well. Uh, if you do watch Band of Brothers, the only 10th Armored 
member who was featured is Jimmy Fallon, who hosts that really great late show uh, on NBC. So he's the only representation of the 10th Armored Division in Band of Brothers. But uh, the big thing was is that uh, you had different teams. Uh, one of them was Team Desiree, who was uh, up in the town of Noville. And they really, uh, they had to deal with pretty much being on the low ground. Uh, the Germans were up on a ridge. They had tanks that were just zeroed in. And again, you, you had some Shermans. You had a few of uh, uh, larger uh, tank destroyers as well. But they really were, were out on an island to their, to their own. And if it wasn't for uh, also the uh, airborne troops coming in, Bastogne would have been overrun within a few days. Um, and the big thing, uh, if Mark wants to go ahead here, uh, in the south you had Team O'Hara. They also were uh, doing a holding action, and uh, they really were just trying to block all the different roads. And Martin, if you want to go to the next one. And, and uh, on the 21st, you start to get the encirclement. And this is where things are getting dire. They're, they're trying to get as many wounded out as they could. Uh, I spoke with one veteran uh, who actually is still alive out, outside of Boston, and he got wounded in Noville. And he literally was yelling to the ambulance driver, get us out of here. And he was able to get out before uh, they were encircled. But uh, it became pretty much a, a game of uh, save the artillery. The 420th uh, armored, uh, field armored artillery really were the stars of the show. They had 360 degree uh, access to the Germans. So pretty much they had to be protected and preserved. Uh, 28th Division and 9th Armored uh, survivors, they formed a group called Team, Team Snafu, and they were the fire brigade. They would go from one place to another. Snafu. Situation normal, all fouled up. Very true. That's right. <laughs> now, uh, ironically, uh, we were able to interview uh, Willis D. Crittenberger, who uh, actually his... <laughs> He was a, what a guy. He was great. And <laughs> he was a star. He I... actually had to take over for his commanding officer who was killed on uh, Christmas Eve 1944. And, and he talked about how they literally just laid out a map and uh, pretty much just made uh, every little uh, quadrant and said, well, we're going to have three guns go there, three guns go there, and three guns go there. And they just saturated the entire area. Of course, the problem was they were running out of ammunition. Then we missed out the 22nd, which was significant because of the ultimatum. Yeah, now, uh, the big thing, you might know, of course, a guy named General McAuliffe. I think we, we've all heard of Mr. McAuliffe. Now, of course, he was uh, put in a very difficult uh, position because, of course, General Taylor, who was supposed to be uh, with the 101st, was not with them when they had to get out to Bastogne and hold the line. So uh, General McAuliffe, he had to become the commanding officer. And, of course, he was given quite an ultimatum, Martin. Do you want to get into that? It was a good one. Yeah, it was a good one. The thing was that the two Germans that approached some guys from the 327th glider, the two Germans that approached them, waving a white flag, said, we have a message for your commander. So they took these two guys to McCauley's office. And the first guy they met was Harry Kinnard, Harry O. Kinnard, who was a G3 man. And uh, Harry says, what's all this about? And they said, well, we've got uh, a surrender ultimatum for you. So Harry takes the ultimatum and he shows it to General McAuliffe. And Tony McAuliffe said, what's this, Harry? He said, it's uh, surrender from the Germans. He said, oh, the Germans want to surrender. <laughs> And uh, Harry said, no, they want us to surrender. And he said, ah, oh, nuts. Listen, Harry. And he actually dictated a two-page reply. He was an articulate man, an erudite, intelligent man, West Pointer, and not profane. That was Patton's department. <laughs> Macaulay wasn't profane. And he said to Harry when he'd finished, he said, Harry, read that back to me. And Harry reads it back, and he said, well, what do you think of that? And Harry Kennard says, I think your first response was the best. 
She said, what was that? He said, you, what you always say in these situations, nuts. She said, I can't, I can't say nuts to the Germans. He said, of course you can. He said, yeah, I can. So he took a piece of paper and wrote nuts with an exclamation mark. He says, take that to them. <laughs> so they did. They took the paper back to two jokers called Byerline and Cocotte. So the general of the 26th, Volksgrenadier, and the general of the dangerous Panzer These guys get the ultimatum. They open the paper and they say, Nutz? Was ist das? Nutz, das ist Nüssen, ja, Nüssen. And they ask a young officer who speaks good English, is it a positive or a negative reply, Michael? Well, yeah, they, uh, <laughs> they at first said, well, really, what, what is that? And of course, they said, no, 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 no. That pretty much means go to hell. That's the way. <laughs> go to hell. And you know, at no given time, during the siege of Bastogne, were the defenders outnumbered by the attackers. They were roughly the same. Now, the first week during the Battle of the Bulge, the fog was so thick you could cut it with a knife. That worked to the advantage of the American defenders because the Germans didn't know how many Americans were there and the Americans didn't know how many Germans were attacking them. What they didn't know, those 2,300 men from the 10th Armored Division who were manning those three outposts, the three main approach roads, in fact, defended them with the 101st, helped with the 101st who dug in. Hell, we didn't need Patton. <laughs> That's what they said to me. Well, they were roughly the same. On, 23rd, on the 23rd of December, something amazing happened. Well, and finally, they got relief. The uh, C-47s flew right on over. Uh, and for many, it was really about the ammunition and food and, of course, medical supplies as well. But uh, especially those artillerymen, they were running very low. They had to be very careful what they fired. And uh, it really was uh, many veterans almost saw them as angels in the sky. Um, but there was also another story Involving yeah, that, they, uh, they was running out of medics um, because Jack Pryor and his lot up at Noville had lost quite a few. So they went around scouting for nurses and two nurses, two Belgian nurses volunteered on the 20th of December. One of them was René Lemaire and the other one was Madame Auguste Chiwi. Who is that guy, Mike? Well, so Jack Pryor, he actually was a, he was a doctor uh, from Vermont went to medical school, joined up uh, the Army. He, he was only allowed to join up when he completed his medical training. That's what his mother said. He said, either you become a doctor, and if you do that, then yeah, sure, you can go on, into uh, the military. But uh, this man, he actually almost uh, allowed himself to be captured in Noville during the fighting. He was taking care of patients. The Germans, of course, were getting closer. And he said, no, no I'm going to stay here. And, of course, all the... Uh, officer said, no way, if you get captured, we're going to have one less doctor to uh, really keep us alive. So he reluctantly left Noville to go back towards Bastogne. That was when they met 50 years later. That was Nurse Renée Le Maire. When the skies opened and the C-47s made quite possibly the most accurate drop of World War II, they'd actually sent in rangers that morning to work out, mark out the uh, DZs and the LZs. These rangers have done a good job. By the way, they were the only airborne who parachuted into Bastogne. The other guys, the 101st Airborne, they came up in tank transporters, in trucks. But there was another airborne unit, the 82nd, who were on the northern shoulder. Now, the difference between these two units is very, very simple, very simple. 101st, dig in and hold on. 82nd, you're up against the SS. Take the fight to the enemy. And did they. Remember Albert Darbell? That's right. Uh, first, Mohawk, first Mohawk to be uh, in the 82nd. That's right. Best scout they ever had, Mike. Yeah. Now, the Germans actually wrote in some of their notes were being attacked by Indians <laughs> on the northern shoulder. Albert was a real deal. 
He was a mohawk <laughs> with the haircut and the war paint. And he used to talk to the trees before he went out on patrol. And he'd come back to his commander at each company, the guy called, who's still alive, 102 years old. Oh, what a guy. James Maggie, Maggie Magellus. Right. He said Albert was the best scout you could ever have. He would report back to me. He said, so what's the situation, Albert? He said, well, there were six Germans over there by the river. There were two over there by the cabin. There was one over there on the bridge, and there were three on the other side of the bridge. I said, oh, come on, Albert, leave some for us, will you? <laughs> he was too good at his job. He ended up working. What was his job after the war? Oh, he, uh, he was one of the uh, Skywalkers. He did uh, all Absolutely. the uh, ironworks down in uh, New York City. Wonderful. You see, when we write a book together, our job doesn't end when the book's finished. We keep tabs on these veterans. We follow them. We follow them everywhere. We look after them. We write to them. We Skype with them. And we keep in touch with them because we love them. On the 24th of December, when the skies had opened for the C-47s, it opened for the Luftwaffe too, Mike. Well, and this became uh, really an easy target, of course. Uh, you didn't really have too many uh, anti-aircraft defenses. You did have uh, a battalion of uh, anti -air armored anti-aircraft, um, as they used to call them, the woodchoppers. They were four 50 caliber machine guns uh, on the back of a uh, pretty much a trailer that they could bring to different areas. Now, uh, the issue was is that, uh, of course, a lot of people were out and about. They were trying to re uh, rearm, re-equip in Bastogne, and really it left uh, that night as a night of terror. It was a terrible night indeed. Around about eight o'clock, first of all, the Germans they were actually using. Uh, the aircraft they were using were not actual bombers, but the first round they made, they were dropping incendiaries to light up the place. The second round they made, they flew very, very low, and then they started dropping 500-pound bombs on Bastogne. One of them hit the aid station where René Lemaire Rene was working. That is the best photograph we know of the aid station after the bombing. That's where Augusta was working, where Rene was. Augusta, she'd gone next door to have a glass of champagne with Jack Pryor. And it was a bottle of champagne. They'd actually been washing in champagne. There was no electricity. There was no water. They'd been washing in champagne. They'd been disinfecting wounds with five-star cognac. That's all they had. There was no morphine. They were tearing up bed sheets for bandages. They were in a bad way. Actually, Augusta Shiwi participated in an amputation of a foot and a hand without anesthetic. She could do that. Rene couldn't do that. Rene was the wiping the brow and holding the hand angel of Bastogne, and a wonderful lady that she was. Now, Augusta's next door having a glass of champagne. The 500-pound bomb drops. Augusta gets blown clean through a wall, clean through. And she's only a tiny lady. She got up. What the heck was that? Some good champagne you've got there. Dear me. <laughs> and she said, oh, we better go and see what the situation is at the aid station. There was no aid station. It had gone. It had been completely flattened. The following day, Augusta Chewy volunteers to work with the 101st Airborne. The situation on the 25th of December is quite dire. Can you point out what's happening over here, Mike? Well, yeah. Where are your boys from the, the 10th Armored Division? Well, they're still kind of, uh, they're, at that point, of course, they're, uh, they're really hunkered down. But really, up in the, uh, let's see, the Champs area, you have, uh, and saint Champ as well, you have the 420th. At that point, the Germans realized, well, that's where the artillery is. We need to attack them. So uh, the 101st and the 10th Armored pretty much just created a, a barrier between the Germans and the uh, 420th artillery, and literally what they did, and this is why we, I called that the quad 50 calibers, the wood choppers, well, they literally pointed them all at the Germans and just sprayed the woods all around Saint-Alchamp and pretty much annihilated the, the threat. So uh, actually, and they also pointed their artillery just like a tank in a way. Um, you know, again, this is where when you, when you get it straight from the commander who was there, Willis D. Crittenberger, and when he also gives you his yeah. typed out... Uh, uh, summary, which was very nice. 
Uh, it was you, an amazing guy. You get a much more clear picture of what was actually going on because sometimes you'll see a report in an archive and it's actually missing a lot of the uh, minute details that someone on the ground would have provided. How cold was it? Oh, well, um, you, you'd think maybe being in a tank would be a good thing. Well, no, it wasn't. Uh, we had a tanker who was uh, from Connecticut who said he, his feet froze uh, just because his feet were on the cold steel. Uh, but yet we had uh, uh, Zeke Proust, who was a tank retriever. He was in a, a tank retriever uh, to pretty much pick up Jeeps and other vehicles. And he was lucky because the transmission he used gave a little bit of heat off and kept his feet from freezing. But uh, it was just brutal. And actually, many, uh, many a veteran said that's why a lot of them went down south, because once the cold hit, they, they would have that tingly feeling. Allow me to uh, explain that in a Scottish way. <laughs> I like a draft up my kilt. I love it. In fact, I would challenge any man to stand on a hillside near where I live in Dunkeld. Stand on that hillside <laughs> with the wind blowing through your hair and a draft blowing up your kilt. It will put a smile on your face you cannot remove with a Black & Decker sander. <laughs> I guarantee you. But there's cold and they're silly. Almost two-thirds of the casualties incurred there were due to weather-related conditions. Hypothermia, trench foots, no fun. One guy I met, James Haney Jr., the guy, he was a Boston man. I thought he had a speech impediment. He thought I had one. <laughs> he couldn't say Normandy, you know. But James, he, uh, when he went back to the States, he moved to Florida. And I met him 70 years after the fact. He decided to come back and have a look. And it's the middle of the summer, and it's sweltering hot out in the Ardennes. And we went up onto the ridge where he'd been. And he said, look at that, son. And he's pointing at his feet, and I'm looking for a war wound or a bullet hole. And I, what are you pointing at, Jim? I can't see it. I can't see it. He said, it's the middle of summer, isn't it? And I said, I'd notice that. I'm not a summer person. I don't look good in speedos. The two halves don't match anymore. You know, anyway. He says, listen, look at that again. He was wearing four pairs of socks in the middle of summer. I said, why is that, Jim? He says, my feet haven't been warm since 1944. Then I get Mike to go to the archives in D.C. and look at the medical records for this man. When he took his boots off, his toes came off with it. And that's why he couldn't get his toes warm. He didn't have any to get warm. That was not unusual. Cold was terrifying, absolutely terrifying. So you're fighting a determined enemy. You're fighting the elements. On Christmas Day, a big attack goes in. Bastogne takes on another significance. All units to Bastogne. What's happening with these guys, Mike? Well, finally, you've got relief. Uh, there had been rumors, uh, the, the rumor mill of Patton coming, Patton's coming, Patton's coming. Um, it finally came true. Uh, the 4th uh, Armored Division finally racing up. They, they made it to the outskirts of Bastogne. Uh, there's actually a tank. Uh, we were actually having a discussion yeah, we, about yeah. where this tank is right now. But uh, there is a tank that they actually painted on the side first in, in Bastogne. Bastogne. Yeah. And uh, it was here for a while. No. We know it was at Vilsec Barracks, but the guy who drove it was a guy called Charles Borges. And Charles came back to Bastogne in 1984, and I saw him. And they took him around the city in a Sherman tank. And he, he passed away shortly after that, God bless him. But he had the first in Bastogne. And his boss was Abrams, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah Abrams, yep. Yeah, whom we interviewed. Mm. Uh, was that? No, it was Erzik. Oh, it's, oh, Erzik. oh you're yeah. right. So... Christmas Day, there was a big attack went in. Christmas, well, day, day one, uh, 26th Boxing Day, we call it, in the United Kingdom. Patton breaks through here. Now, the wonderful thing about the French language is that when you pronounce it, it sounds nice. Asenoir. Not ass noise. <laughs> which is what it got called. Patton breaks through, but look at this here. Look at this. See that corridor there, right? That's only a mile wide. He's running the gauntlet, but he gets through to Bastogne. You can now take out your wounded, 
You can now bring in ammunition. The fight isn't over yet. The reduction of the bulge is a gradual thing. You've got the first army coming down from the north. You've got the third army coming up from the south. And it's the biggest pincer action ever orchestrated in the Western theater. But the most amazing thing about this, now, Patton, love him or hate him, let me tell you something about Patton. To disengage from one front, turn around a whole army, 90 degrees, and send them to another fight, took a certain amount of discipline. To be able to do that, you had to be good. You had to have the respect of the guys underneath you. Patton had that. Patton had that. 350,000 men. That's not counting auxiliary stuff. Maybe roughly around a half a million moving north. They closed the bulge. All blood and guts. This man passed yesterday. And we're going to miss him. Oh. That's Augusta Shiwi. With me and Mike. Which, uh, by the way, everyone, she, did, she, she knew English. I, I was able to get a little bit out of her because uh, yeah. I would say, Augusta, you know English, and you'd kind of give me this little wry smile, and I said, no, I know you do. And she would actually hey, say a little she bit. She knew English, and she knew some words she picked up from the GIs, <laughs> yeah. which were a little bit fruity. <laughs> but she was a star. We worked hard and campaigned for this lady who remained silent about what she'd seen and heard, for 70 years. What happened? What, did she, what was the title that she gets, Mike? Well, she finally uh, was given knighthood. She was knighted by the Kingdom of Belgium. King of Belgium, right. That is the Emmy Award-winning documentary. This was our first book. Long this was ago. the most difficult book we ever wrote because we actually recorded We've been meticulous about recording and filming every single veteran we've spoken to over the years and maintaining this archive and making it available to academics and schools and whoever basically wanted to use it. It's been a labor of love. It was one of the first books to be released with uh, a DVD in the cover. And there are some stars there. We have one of the last survivors of the Malmody Massacre there. Big Eagles fan. Ted Pollage. This is the Tigers of Bastogne. Because of Band of Brothers, well, there were too many mistakes made about that. You know, assuming that it was just the 101st right. and, and And we decided, you know, we've we got to fix some of this. Uh, yeah. You know, it, the real story needed to be told. Uh, of course, the 101st did a, uh, an amazing job of, of helping to... Uh, Really break the uh, the stone wall in Bastogne, and and but really it was the it was about uh, getting the the real story through. But we, we didn't want Jimmy Fallon to just be the only image of uh, the 10th Army. <laughs> On the 16th of January, the first army meet the third army in Hufalis. It's all over. The greatest American victory in World War II, the biggest land battle in United States military history, and one you should celebrate and commemorate and venerate. Now, Mike and I did a little survey. He went to his old alma mater, and I went to a school in Bastogne, and I asked 20 students, what's the Battle of the Bulge? And they all said, we know what it is, because every 15 minutes in Bastogne, a bell rings to remind the people of Bastogne of how expensive their freedom was. Your guys, five of them said, we think it might be a weight loss program. <laughs> <laughs> and two of them knew what it actually was. But anyway, I want to thank every single one of you who come to see us tonight. And do buy our books because we support a lot of veterans. Uh, the 4th Infantry Division, the 30th Infantry Division, the 10th Armored Division, the 106th Division, all these guys. And they've all been heroes to us and become great friends of ours, people we've loved and cared about for 20 years and continue to do so. And there are not many left now, but I want you to venerate them now. And I want you to remember the 16th of December, not just Christmas Day, because if you're in Bastogne on the 16th of December, it can get a little bit lively. It's bigger than Christmas there.
They celebrate it. They honor your boys. And I think we should honor them too. So thank you, everyone. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Right, mate. Get your selfies here. Ladies, ladies and gentlemen, we have about 15 minutes for questions and answers. Uh, again, please raise your hand. Uh, myself or Shannon will come to you with the, uh, with the microphone uh, so we can go ahead and get started. Who's got our first question for tonight? Right here in the middle. Did you interview any of the uh, German soldiers opposing? Yes. I, any comments on that? Yeah, I'll, I'll make that short and sweet. Uh, did you ever hear about the Malmody Massacre, where 83 American POWs were summarily executed by the SS? I went out to track down the perpetrators, and I found the man who gave the order to shoot. His name was Hans Siptot. He was in the 1st Division SS, Liebstandarter Adolf Hitler. He was 96 when I met him and interviewed him. I interviewed a witness to the crime, a man called Bern Pfeiffer, who was in the cafe, who saw everything that happened. And then I flew to Philadelphia to speak to one of the survivors of the massacre. But the Germans were integral. You see, they weren't all SS. That was just mainly northern shoulder. I met a lot of guys. There was one guy I brought from Dusseldorf. Do any of you know a TV series called Greatest Tank Battles? I don't know if you've heard about this, right? Well, I wrote that series and I appeared in a few of the episodes. And for one of the episodes, I uh, interviewed a guy, this is the most amazing story, a guy called Hans Herbst. We brought him with a taxi from Dusseldorf to Belgium. It's about three hours with a cab. And we got him there for nine o'clock in the morning, and the man spoke on camera continuously for 15 hours, without stopping for a break or going for a pee, anything. 15 hours straight. I had a Canadian film crew with me who were pulling their hair out. Two were in tears and one had already left, you know, and he kept going. And Hans Herbst had the luckiest escape of any German soldier because he was firing something called the Panzerfaust and he, came, he faced off against a Sherman M4A1. The Sherman M4A1 turned its turret towards him, shells in the cannon, and Hans releases his Panzerfaust, and it just glances off the cannon from this Sherman. The Sherman returns fire, but what Hans didn't know, he was stood there waiting to die. What he didn't know was that his Panzerfaust had slightly bent the cannon. So the shell exploded in the cannon. The crew survived, and so did Hans. He said, you could not see my backside with a dust cloud. He said, but American cigarettes were great. He enjoyed the luckies. And the food was better than they were getting. So yeah, the Germans, I, we, in every book we wrote, we put accounts of the Germans as well. You know, I'm not speaking in defense of them per se, but you know, there were guys who'd been press ganged into this, who didn't want to be there. The SS were a different case. The SS that they used at the Battle of the Bulge I interviewed a few of these guys, and some of them were still feisty. Uh, we met one guy, uh, Hans Cressman, uh, Knight's Cross. Erwin Cressman, Knight's Cross holder. Seven foot, this man. Straight as a die. Proud man. SS. He walked into the Holiday Inn where we were filming in a reception room, and he had a woman with him who looked like an extra from a Wagnerian opera. She had the hair and the plaits. I was quite bumptious. I thought she was quite attractive. And I said, Mr. Cressman, uh, can I offer you and your daughter a drink? He said, my daughter? He said, this is my mistress. My wife is at home. He was 93. <laughs> so yeah, we interviewed them. Any more questions? All right. Who's got our next question? Right here up front. I don't need the mic, but I'll use it, Barton. A uh, question I posed to you earlier today. Yes, uh, did you have a chance to interview any intel people? Because I am frankly surprised we didn't know the Germans were doing everything they were doing. And the 28th Infantry is Pennsylvania Division. That's a bloody bucket. National Guard. And they got beat up in the Hurricane too, a little mm -hmm. bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, the, 
we were too dependent on Ultra. The whole Allied situation was too dependent on Ultra. And by December 1944, we were freely sharing information. The problem actually occurs, I think, in the chain of command, where we have the intelligence, but the further it goes up, it begins to dissipate. And by the time he gets to Omar Bradley, he said, ah, there's no way we're going to attack them. The guys from the 106, they said something about, yeah. Actually, uh, Francis Curry, a Medal of Honor recipient, uh, who was Francis. about 18 when he uh, yeah. received his medal, uh, he always quipped. He said, yeah, you know, Army intelligence, because, of course, he and his men uh, <laughs> yeah. were there was about five or six of them were stuck in some foxholes, and they literally said, don't worry, nothing's coming through here. Of course, then all of a sudden, German tanks rolled through. Uh, and, uh, yeah. SS tanks, my Yeah, friend. SS. That was yeah. the 150th Brigade, Otto right. Scorzini. That's right. That's right, yeah. And so in intelligence was, uh, to, some, to some GIs, it was pretty much useless for some of them. But, again, that's right on, on the, uh, you know, up on the front lines, and such as an Omar, Br Omar Bradley might have been seeing things a little bit different. <laughs> yeah, but Omar Bradley, right, this is what amazes me about this guy, is that he heard the information. He was getting information from the 28th. They actually captured two Germans. And the two Germans said to them, hey, we've got a whole army behind us here, you know. Here we get ready, lads. Oh, party time for you lot. And they took them to the HQ of the 12th Army Group. And they interrogated them, and they said, ah, don't believe them, it's propaganda, it's rubbish, don't believe it. And so it dissipated, the higher up the chain of command it went. And then, of course, with the Germans having radio silence. You see, the whole premise of our intelligence came on intercepting information, comms between the units. We couldn't intercept comms because they weren't making any. Now, what we should have had then, we couldn't have in that film with Henry Fonda flying around in a, in a pop tent, you know, oh, come on. Nothing was flying. Nothing was getting up there. Yeah. Piper Cub, yeah. No, and it was, a, it was a failure of intelligence. But again, from the Allied side, we made far too many assumptions of saying that the Germans were finished. The Germans were not finished, and we should have had an inkling because we knew they weren't just moving divisions from the east to the west, they were moving armor from east to west. And we should have known. We should have put two and two together and made the conclusion that this area needed to be defended instead of left open with a gap. Yeah, please, any more questions? Sir, how you doing? Ah, uh, good, good to see you. Oh, dear me. Yeah, long time. Sorry, Graham's not here, but he's on holiday. Oh, God bless you. Martin King, Randy Galkey, and good to see you again since uh, 2010. Good to see you, Randy. Can you, the two of you, kind of say the top three or four things that won for the American side? And my other question, I'll do a real quick sneak in one. If there was one battle where the Americans could have lost and the side could have changed, is there a spot, a turning point in that sense that you think of, can think of? Yes. Um, yes. The one they could have lost quite decisively was the Hurtgun. The thing is with the Hurtgun, there, there were dams. The Schwaman Owl Dam was in there. And, you know, the myth of the dam busters. The British didn't blow up all the dams. You know, and most of these bombs didn't even work. It was propaganda. The dams were still there, and they were still supplying hydroelectricity to the whole Ruhr area. So the Hartgen was a problem. Now, if you speak to a German officer who was, and I spoke to many, from the 116th Windhund Division, the Greyhound Division, I spoke to a lot of these guys, they said, well, the Battle of the Bulge is actually part one and part two, and we won part one. And it's actually true. They did. The, the thing is, you see, if our intel would have been good enough, we would have known there were two strands of the Siegfried line running straight through the middle of that forest. That forest was mined, wired, and waiting. We walked into a trap there. And the biggest problem was that nothing above the rank of captain went to see what the problem was. 
They just poured division after division and said, why aren't we making progress? Even the maps were rubbish. They were showing roads where no roads existed. So yeah, it was the Hartgun. That could have been a game changer, definitely. Thank you, Randy. And also to answer the first part of your question, I mean, really it was, you had a really American ingenuity was really one. Uh, you, you know, oh, yeah, yeah. No matter, no matter what it was uh, that came upon, you know, you could have an 18-year-old like a Francis Curry take yeah, over yeah. and pretty much assess the situation and he, figure he out a way. He gave me didn't he? Because yeah. I said, I, said the, I was introducing him. We were at Mike's alma mater in Siena College, upstate New York, Albany. And I said, now we have a Medal of Honor recipient who took out five tanks. And Francis Curry was a big guy. So, the man's a liar. <laughs> I only took out four and I stuck three. <laughs> I said, that counts. <laughs> That's like five tanks. What's your problem? You know, and my wife actually helped him put on his Medal of Honor. And I think it was one of the most auspicious things I've ever seen in my life. I was so proud. What a great man. But yeah, I mean, that's the one thing. You know, these, of course, the German command, it was always whoever was in that higher rank, they knew what was going on. If something happened to them, well, you might be up a creek. But uh, really, I think it was, it was also tenacity. I mean, these, a lot of these American units who were out uh, the 106th, the 99th, uh, the 28th, I mean, they held, they held on. I mean, the 106th, a lot of people saw them as, oh, well, they, they were you know, overrun and captured, but if they, hadn't, if they didn't do what they did uh, with, really, they were facing tanks with, you know, bazookas and that was it. Uh, if it wasn't for that, the, the Battle of the Bulge probably would have been a very different absolutely, battle itself. So, absolutely, that uh, first 24 hours, if the, the 106th Division wouldn't have hold those held those positions, right. they would run straight through to St. Vith. So yeah, any more questions, please? Ladies and gentlemen, we have time for one more question. One more question. One more question, right here in the, in the back. You mentioned sort of the, uh, that the fog helped the defense really with the allies and at least in the first 72 hours or so. Wasn't, didn't the, uh, really the air shut down our primary technological superiority, which was our air superiority. So our primary advantage was effectively negated for the first 10 days, is that? About the first 10 days, so right. yeah. So yeah. basically the, the weather effects, as I understand it. It was a significant factor, sir, yeah. For the, for the, uh, for the Germans. Well, both. Well, actually, you know, this is a strange thing that they called it Hitler weather. Hitler had actually promised them this weather. Now, I've lived in Belgium for 32 years with my lovely wife here. And I know that the Ardennes like the back of my hand. I love the area because it reminds me of the lowlands of Scotland. That's why it's a beautiful area with pine trees and rolling hills. Great place. But every year from about the end of October, till well into January, the days start with dense mist. Now sometimes the mist can go on for days and weeks in fact. You see, what you have in the Ardennes is basically, you have these low valleys with rivers that run at the base of the valleys and you have pine trees, which are mostly Scots pines that were imported. A lot of these forests in the Ardennes are planted forests for logging. Naturally, you get that combination of cold weather dropping below a certain temperature, you're going to have mist, you're going to have fog. Now, in the defense of the Germans, they said, yeah, this is great, the Americans can't get any planes in the sky, we've got a, we've got a carte blanche here, we're going to go straight through them. But the thing is, you see, their intel was good. Now, in the West Point manual, it will tell you that a division front is five and a half miles. The 106th Division, we're covering... Oh, God, it's a lot more than that. I, 26 miles. Six miles yeah. The 99th Division, 31 miles. The 4th Division, 18 miles. The 28th Division were really strung out, almost 38 miles. But you see, the thing was, when the Germans attacked, they knew that the numbers weren't as big as theirs. But what they didn't know was, when they actually came to the encounters, was how many were on the other side. The 10th Armored Division took out 32 German tanks. They took on the whole 2nd Panzer Division. And the 2nd Panzer Division had no idea that it was just a handful of guys and a handful of tanks at that position. So it kind of worked both ways, you know. But when the skies did clear, 
then I think you can say quite comfortably it was game over for the Germans. Because when you got those B-51s in the sky, strafing the columns, and you got the bombers, well, it was game over. Absolutely. Thank you for your question, sir. Thank you for listening to our lecture. The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center at Carlisle Barracks, Pennsylvania, USA, is the U.S. Army's archival collection. To learn more about the Army's history or to plan a visit to our center, please visit us online at www.usahec.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube to learn more about our upcoming events. <laughs>